You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Titus 3. Um, the way I'm addressing, the way I'm calling this, this lesson is uh, salvation as a new rich reality. Salvation as a new rich reality. Um, I want to read the text, or perhaps ask uh, any of you who have the text, if you don't mind, uh, reading it for us. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, please. At what time we too were foolish, disobedient, seized and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God Savior, God our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through, the, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be faithful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's good. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, there are a couple of things that I want to focus here, and that is the, the fact that when speaking of salvation, there isn't just one word or one concept. But salvation is such a rich reality that Paul needs to use a number of different phrases and uh, metaphors and so on. So that's the first thing I want to drill down on. The second thing is about um, the relationship of this salvation to reality. So we speak about being saved. Here he talks about um, being delivered, about new birth, justification, and eternal life. How are those things real? Have you ever wondered about that? I know, for example, that when he says that uh, through the uh, washing of regeneration, I know that there hasn't been a literal cleaning (laughs) of something inside my soul right Uh, so what what does what this language of salvation in in what sense is it real how can you speak of being born again being being regenerated and so on Uh, is that something that happens in the mind of god how is it real so I want to talk about those those two things: the the, the wealth of our salvation and uh, uh, how 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 is that real? What does it what does it really mean to be saved in this way? Uh, the first thing that Paul does uh, is, like Gilt spoke about, it's, it's a little bit of uh, not law as such, but uh, first showing us who we were before. Uh, conversion before meeting Christ. I notice that in verse 3, he uses a, uh, 
A catalog of vices is what the Greeks used to call this. He uses a catalog of vices to explain who we were before conversion. Uh, and there are three, three aspects here that I quickly want to call to your attention. Uh, he says at the beginning of verse 3, For we once also, notice that he includes himself here. Paul is not saying, uh, this was not me. Even though he was a pious Jew, have you ever thought about that? How is it that someone who was a pious Jew, who according to Philippians, he was uh, faultless uh, with the law, how can he say that he was uh, all these things, foolish, disobedient? Uh, he kept the law. So what? Well, I think what Paul looks at his life and the law through the lens of Jesus. And I think what he says is that once I, once I met Jesus and I look back on my life before that, I realized that my persecution of the church made me foolish, show how enslaved I was, showed my pride, and so on. So Paul cannot see who he was if he doesn't look at that through the lens of Christ and what happened to him at, uh, on the road to Damascus. So that's how he can speak about being all these things, despite having been a uh, religious man. Uh, well, he uses the language of uh, foolishness. We were, we were once foolish, uh, disobedient, and being deceived. Uh, two of these words that are used here uh, were used by uh, Greek philosophers of the period. Remember, uh, in the ancient world, especially in the, in the first century AD, there were a number of philosophies that were telling the people, we can teach you how to, li how to live a good life. So in ancient moral Greek philosophy, think about Plato, think about Aristotle, uh, think about uh, Plutarch, uh, people who lived in that period. They, they were philosophers and they uh, philosophy was not so much about uh, metaphysics and, and how, you know, how complicated philosophy is today, but philosophy was much more about how can I lead a virtuous life. And Christianity was not the only uh, thing on the market uh, about how to learn to lead a virtuous life. We had, how many philosophers were there? There were the Platonists, right? The Stoics, there were one. The Cynics. They were another group. The Epicureans, right? So there were a group of philosophers. And these moral philosophers, they oftentimes use language uh, to speak of people who had, who had not thought about how to lead a virtuous life. And the language they used was the language of mental derangement. Uh, and that's the word that Paul uses here when he says, once we were foolish. Uh, he's not saying that we were crazy but that, spiritually speaking, we were deranged. Which is pretty powerful. <laughs> a pretty powerful idea if you think about it. Uh, we simply could not, did not have the capacity to see the truth and to know the truth. We were spiritually foolish. The language is also used of someone who is acting like a child, even though they are grown-up, mature people. 
So when it came to the things of God, Paul says, we were uh, spiritually deranged. We acted like children who cannot, uh, cannot live on their own. They need somebody to help them. Uh, I, but if you leave them alone, if I were to leave my 10-year-old alone at home and say, take care of yourself for the next two days, <laughs> he's going to make, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> he's going to make a complete mess. Uh, uh, even though th the idea here is that people, even though they shouldn't be acting like children, they are acting like children because they're spiritually deranged. And you get the relationship part out of it. It's like the end goal was utopia. You live a virtuous life for utopia. The utopia, in a sense, was basically really hedonistic. And, you know, uh -huh. Aristotle said God is the unmoved mover. So basically, he's just this being that sat there and moved everybody, but there was no relationship whatsoever. That's right. There, there's no real God. It's more, it's more about the imminent, what's here on earth, and, and there is nothing outside. Uh, well, there is something outside, but whether he wants to help you or not, it's something else. Uh, he also uses the language of slavery to speak about us. Um, in, uh, in verse 3, being deceived and being slaves to all kinds of pleasures, uh, desires and pleasures. Uh, everyone in the ancient world knew about slavery because slavery was uh, a, a huge reality, right? Uh, there wasn't a, an economy with an infrastructure uh, that you could go apply for a job. <laughs> but uh, there were slaves. Um, and uh, slaves, there were slaves of all kinds. It wasn't a, it wasn't a color, skin color-based slavery, uh, because many of the slaves uh, in the Roman world were Greeks. They were former Greeks prisoners of war, uh, and many of them became the tutors of the Roman children in teaching them Greek. A lot of these Roman fathers wanted their children to learn how to read Homer and the Odyssey, and all that, and the Iliad. And who better than their Greek slaves who knew how to read Greek? So uh, it wasn't a question of skin color. It wasn't a question of education. It was a question of just uh, misfortune. You were taken as a, prisoner, as a prisoner of war, or you were born a slave in a home. And then uh, what, it, uh, what it was to be a slave, it, it depended on the domain. You could be a slave in a home, uh, which was the best case scenario, still bad. Paul still talks about it as a yoke of slavery, uh, but but that was that was uh, different. And if you behave really well, some owners may have rewarded you may have rewarded you with with freedom, giving you your freedom at the end. The worst kind of uh, slaves were those who had to work in the mines, and those who had to work at brothels. So you could be a, a child, um, boy or girl. Uh, adolescent, and you could still be at a brothel as a slave. Um, and so people well understood uh, how bad it was to be a slave and how real it was. And Paul says that uh, before knowing Christ, our reality was one of uh, spiritual slavery. We, and he's, he specifically says, we were slaves to, des to um, uh, desires. Um, let me see here one second. What's the other, the precise term here? Um, uh, 
Yeah. According to the new, the new revised standard version, the NRSV, uh, we were uh, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Now, the language here of passions and pleasures are not bad in themselves. Uh, those words could be used of legitimate passions and legitimate pleasures. So, God created us to have passions and pleasures. You could delight and have pleasure in uh, nature, a glass of wine, sexuality in the right context, uh, sports. There are all kinds of things in which there is a legitimate pleasure uh, and passions. But the problem starts when we become slaves to those passions, when those passions become our raison d'être, our, our reason to live, to exist, uh, then uh, they do a number on us and we become addicted to them, we become slaves to them. And, and so Paul uses that language, we were addicted really, really to various passions and pleasures. Uh, sin in many ways is taking the good things that God has given us. I think this is St. Augustine who said this. Sin is taking the good things that God has given us and uh, twisting them in such a way that rather than using them for the good pleasure that God intended, uh, we use them in a way that is uh, hurtful for the other and also makes us slaves so that those things become our gods and not the God of Israel. And Paul, to to cap off uh, who we were before conversion, he says that uh, um, we were despicable, and then he says, hating one another, hating one another at the end of verse 3. And this really then gets at the love command, right? What is, uh, what is the central commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your spirit, with all your strength, and love your neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus was trying to be tricked, he said, no, here's how you can summarize the whole Torah. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul himself in Romans 13 speaks about, if you love God and if you love your neighbor, you have fulfilled the law. So before conversion, we were the opposite we were not fulfilling the love command, which is uh, our existence. Uh, God made us to love Him and to love one another. And if we don't do that, our existence is going to be out of kilter. I'm reminded again of St. Augustine. Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are not at rest until they find their rest in you. And that rest is found when we love God and when we love neighbor as ourselves. But being uh, spiritually the range, we did not love God and we did not love ourselves, excuse me, and we did not love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's sort of the peak uh, of uh, our lives apart from God. There is no love for God and there is no love for the neighbor. Well, that was a pretty uh, harsh but real picture of who we were. But in verse 4 here of Titus 3, there is a hinge point. 
everything changes. There is, there is a, the word but in verse 4 uh, indicating that there is going to be a shift. Uh, and notice that the shift begins with God. This was our lives before knowing Christ, complete disasters. Uh, but uh, something happened. If I were to go outside the church and ask what happened, most individuals would begin with I. My life was a mess, but then I was able to do this and that. Not Paul. Paul begins with God. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear, He saved us. Not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So for Paul, the only hope for a humanity that loves self and does not love God, the only hope for that humanity is something on the something of the character of God. The fact that He is good and loving. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear. So Paul is very clear that uh, there is no kind of, uh, well, let me put it in a negative way, that there is an, an incongruence. Uh, there is a, uh, something doesn't fit in salvation in the sense that it's not that we have done something that requires God to be kind and loving to us. Quite the contrary. We hadn't done anything <laughs> to please God. But God in an incongruous manner, although we did not deserve it, He chose to love us. Uh, and here He speaks of His goodness and loving kindness. He saved us according to His mercy. But you have... Speaking of the character, of the being and character of God, he, uh, Paul uses uh, a number of terms here. He says that He's good, His goodness. He talks about His loving kindness, so, so God is loving. Uh, and He also says that He loves us, He saved us according to His mercy. So, despite our reality, despite our reality of not loving God and loving neighbor, God's attitude towards us does not change. He is the kind of God who has uh, constituted himself to be a God who is for us, who loves us, who does not want to let us go. And so despite our malice and our slavery to various passions and pleasures, God continues to be good because he's not dependent upon how good we are, but is dependent upon who he is. And then, <clears throat> here come um, these statements that I, that I uh, wanted to highlight. Uh, the variety of statements that he uses, that Paul uses to talk about salvation. So he says, number one, that he saved us. And the language of salvation, so this is very important. Whenever you read the language of salvation in the New Testament, you have to think about, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to think about the Old Testament paradigmatic event of salvation. So, so what, what was that? Let me turn the tables and ask, ask you. Uh, what was the event that the, the Israelites looked back and said, we know that God has saved us and we know that He will save us? 
the Exodus, that's it, right? So the Exodus was the paradigmatic event. It was, as, as a theologian, Robert Jensen has said, uh, if you ask an Israelite uh, and you say, uh, this God uh, uh, saved the people out of Egypt, the Israelite would say, that's our God, Yahweh. He's the one who saved them out of Egypt. And, uh, and that salvation was not only salvation from slavery into freedom, but it was a salvation from spiritual slavery to freedom to serve God. Because he, would tell, he told uh, Moses, let my people go so that they can serve me. So think about that. The, uh, they were serving the gods of Egypt. God is saving them so that they would serve him, the true God. And so when he talks about salvation here, the idea is of deliverance. God has delivered us. And uh, when you look at scripture, that deliverance is multifaceted. What are the things that he has delivered us from? Um, from our sins? From the penalty of our sins? From spiritual slavery? Uh, from demonic powers? In Colossians chapter 2, we hear about Christ on the cross uh, nailing uh, the law to the cross and overcoming the demonic power so that now they don't have power over you. Uh, and, uh, yeah. I mean, I understand the power of the Exodus, but didn't uh, this really begin with Moses after God had dispersed the nations and he had no people and he chose Abraham, who was totally unworthy. He was of the nations, but he drew him out of that uh -huh. dilemma <clears throat> to create a new nation that would be his nation. Yeah, that's he, quite... You know, he even tells Moses about the 400 years down yeah. the road. That's quite right. That's quite right. But we normally tend to think of Abraham as, as the covenant, as God making a covenant, right? He, he committed to be God for them. And then when they went to be slaves in Egypt, he delivered them from Egypt. And that deliverance is viewed as the... The prophets go back and again to the Exodus as an example of who our God is. That, that He's willing, He has the power and He's willing to deliver us even when we fall into uh, both uh, physical and spiritual slavery. So that, that's the, I think that's the, I hear what you're saying, but I think that's more the, the covenant with Israel. Okay, but, but notice what else. Uh, salva so salvation is not just deliverance, but He also talks about. Uh, water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So can you think of other, uh, another passage, Jesus talking to somebody else or talking about regeneration? Chapter 3. Yep, that's okay. <laughs> it is chapter 3, actually. Uh, uh, remember Nicodemus? <laughs> what Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, can a man go into the womb of a mother again? No, you, you must be born of the Spirit and water, which goes back to the book of Ezekiel. So salvation is not just deliverance. It's not just uh, renewal and rebirth by the Holy Spirit. But then thirdly, he tells us in verse 7, so that having been justified, salvation is also justification. The idea basically is that we are guilty before God because of our sin, but on the basis of Christ's atonement, uh, God is willing to say not guilty to all our sins. And then finally, we hear that uh, 
that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there's a, yet another way of thinking about salvation is eternal life. And I like to tell my students that when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not about raw chronology, right? As if eternal life was simply to live forever. Well, some people don't want to live forever. Uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're depressed, you don't want to hear that you're going to be in a state like this forever. So uh, eternal life in Scripture is more about the quality of that life than the quantity of that life. It's uh, being engrafted into the life of God Himself, where, ironically, the succession of time, uh, you're not aware even of the succession of time. So here's how, uh, how I explain eternal life with God. To, to, uh, to us, to think about millions and millions of years, it just crushes us. That's too long. But... Think about when you're having fun. Are you aware of time? When you're, ha when you're playing a really good tennis match and you're just going and going and going and, and <laughs> yeah, if it's a terrible match, then you're quite aware of the time. But when, when it's a really good match that you're playing, whoa, an hour passed and it just, where did the time go? Because the pleasure was so great that you were not aware of the succession of time. So when scripture talks about eternal life, it's being united in the life of God where you're not going to be aware of the succession of time because it is such a blessed state. Well, we have to go, uh, but, but I just, in two minutes, I want to ask the question, how is this real? How is this idea of deliverance, washing and regeneration, justification, how is this real? Okay, basically, there are three three ways to go about this. One is a very unsophisticated, really fundamentalist way of thinking about it, where people think that literally uh, God uh, spiritually took some water or something and actually literally washed me. Okay, that's a problem. That's like saying that when God says, I am the rock of your salvation, that to say that God is a rock. No, that's, that, that's not how it works. On the other hand, and especially in, Pro in Protestant liberalism, the idea is that salvation is purely metaphorical. In the sense that, that when he talks about rebirth and all that, it is not really talking about God saving you, it's talking about human potentiality. That's If you were to go to a Protestant liberal church, this is what you would hear from the pulpit. It says, oh no, it's not that God is saving you, it's that He's making you aware of the innate potentiality that you have in you to change. That's what salvation is. Well, tell that to the drug addict and tell that to the person who has tried to change but has not been able to change. The third and probably the best way to think of this language is what theologians call analogical use of language. And an analogical use of language is language that is stretched to do duty for something that it hadn't done before. Uh, so an, 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 an logical language of God is of God as Father. God is like a Father, right? Uh, God is like a rock, but He's not entirely, He's not exactly like a rock or like a Father. He's so much beyond that. But when we say that God is a rock and that God is our salvation, we are speaking truthfully, we're not speaking falsely. So, in some ways, this is true. This is genuinely true. We have been washed we have been justified, we have been saved, but what exactly that means uh, remains a mystery, but it is true. 
Okay, I have to stop there. Thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.